Y'all can open your Bibles to the book of 1 Timothy. We're going to start through the pastoral epistles this morning. It'll be 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and then we'll hit on Titus. And Paul here is writing, and he's writing this letter, aka epistle, to Timothy, who is a young overseer of the church of Ephesus. And at the time of writing, Timothy was evidently connected to this church in Ephesus in some way, and it appears that he was actually the overseer of this church while Paul was away. These two pastoral epistles to Timothy are instructing him on how to oversee the church well. So it's really instructive from Paul, the aged apostle, as he calls himself, to this younger, um, more impressionable guy, Timothy. Some place the writing of this first epistle pretty early in the life of the church of Ephesus. Uh, That's possible. However, there was already a system in place in this church for dealing with and helping the widows. And this system seems to indicate that some time had passed that would have allowed this church to grow a little bit and develop these systems. So that tells me that this writing was probably a little bit later in the life of the church. And it does appear just because of how similarly Paul uses language in First and Second Timothy, it appears that they were written very close together. So Second Timothy came not long after First Timothy. And Paul weaves in this military style of writing to Timothy. It's interesting to see him do that, and we'll see a very apparent example um, at the end of the first chapter. But it's interesting because of what he wrote to the Ephesian church. In Ephesians 6.12, he uses this example of the armor of God. And he talks about how we are warring not with flesh and blood, but with principalities, powers, um, and forces that govern the world today. And so he's got this idea of a war in his mind, and he carries that over in his um, admonitions to Timothy now. Paul had wanted to come to Ephesus himself to help this church, where we'll see today that many false teachings, false doctrines were creeping into. Um, Very timely, having just been through 2 Peter, we come to 1 Timothy, and we still have this issue with false doctrines circulating in the church. But due to the urgency of the situation and the fact that Paul could not get to them at this time, uh, we think that this was during one of his imprisonments in Rome. So he was actually a prisoner at this point. um, And he says he wanted to come to the church of Ephesus, but he couldn't. So what do you do if you can't go? You just write to them, right? So he is writing to the church and to Timothy, who is pastoring the church in Ephesus. He instructs Timothy, and we'll see the word charge come into play. This charge is a military word. It's a command. So I command my subsidiary, my lower ranking officer, to command someone else to carry out an action on the battlefield. That's what this urge, this charge is. So Timothy was in charge of the church, and he was pastoring the church. Paul is charging Timothy 
And he's challenging him to, one, he's saying this false doctrine that has arisen in the church must be erased. You need to take care of this false doctrine. Two, he's saying public worship must be safeguarded and kept orderly. Three, qualifications for bishops and deacons must be met. Four, mature leadership, and specifically in Timothy, must be developed. Five, covetousness seems to be a problem that they were dealing with. He says that covetousness needs to be put away in the church. So Timothy has a tall order in front of him. And we'll see all of these things in more detail as we go through these two letters to Timothy. But Paul is coming from this position of authority. He is Paul, the aged apostle. He's been there. He's done that. He's writing to Timothy, this young pastor in Ephesus. And Timothy is now facing a heavy burden of responsibility for this church in Ephesus. Um, And a good summary of this book, 1 Timothy, can be found in 1 Timothy 3.15. It says, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And he's just, he's writing and Paul is explaining both to Timothy and through Timothy to the church, how they are to conduct themselves. So this is good for me. And it's good for y'all. Okay, it's, it's good for everybody. Uh, scripture is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Verse 1, 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. To Timothy, a true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul opens up his epistle and he says who's writing, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. But he uses a different way of explaining his apostleship. There are a few instances in his letters where Paul introduces himself as an apostle by the will of God. Okay, here he says by the commandment of God. It's that charge. It's a command from God that he carry on to the people that he is teaching. Now, it makes good sense that he would say, you know, I'm, I'm not here. I'm not an apostle by the will of man, but the will of God. And that, a commandment. If you remember back in Acts 9, it recounts the story of Saul's conversion. He was traveling to Damascus, actually on his way to persecute the church, to bind up Christians and take them back to Jerusalem. And it was on his way when this bright light broke out and shone all around him. And Jesus spoke to him saying, why do you persecute me? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He was struck blind and then Jesus entered Uh, commanded him to enter the city of Damascus. When he did so, he would find a man named Ananias that had come. Similarly, Ananias got a vision to come see Paul. Now, if I was Ananias and I got a a charge to seek out Saul of Tarsus as a Christian, 
I think that would be quite terrifying. This guy has been roaming around that area just simply killing Christians, causing them to blaspheme the name of Christ. Um, I don't know that if this guy had hauled off my family and caused me to blaspheme Christ and then maybe executed my family in front of me, I don't know that I would want to go find this guy. I mean, that, that goes against everything I've been taught. But Ananias was commanded to go to the house of Judas and find this Saul of Tarsus who would be looking for him. So that is exactly what he does. He finds Saul and he lays his hands on him and the scales fall from his eyes. He's able to see. And Saul was brought to Christ through a direct act of Jesus. It wasn't by one of Jesus's ambassadors who came and preached the gospel to Paul. Hey, this is the good news of Jesus Christ. It wasn't that way. It was directly from Jesus. It was a commandment from Jesus. And of course, he knew that Saul's heart was ready. Um, It is also the Holy Spirit's job to prepare our hearts. I believe that he was working in Saul to bring him to that point. Now, this whole story points to this intervening act of God to call on his chosen. And Paul certainly didn't come to faith by the works of any man, uh, but by the direct commandment of God. And God literally says that he chose Saul in Acts 9.15. He says when replying to Ananias' concerns about going to find Saul, God says, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. To Timothy, So now he tells us who he's writing to. He says, this is Paul writing. I'm writing to Timothy, a true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, Timothy was converted before Paul wrote this letter to him. Obviously, Timothy is a Christian at this point um, and teaching Christians. But apparently he was also converted by Paul and Paul calls him a true son in the faith. That seems to indicate that Paul was the reason that Timothy was converted. Verse 3, he says, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to to fables and endless genealogies, which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. Now, the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from a sincere faith, from which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. 1 Timothy was written, as we see here in verse 3, not long after Paul had left Ephesus for Macedon. It says, as I urge you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, that you may charge some, that they teach no other doctrine. Here is that word charge, okay? The commandment, command, a military word for passing orders down through the rank. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, 
that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. That's Paul speaking in Acts 20, 28, and 30. He is literally, he has this foreknowledge. He has this inkling that once he leaves, there's going to be wolves come in. And so he knows that, and he is preparing this church in Ephesus for those wolves that will come up. No other doctrine remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. And we just studied through Second Peter, and we saw the dire situation that is brought along by these false teachers. Now we see the effects of the false teachers in First Timothy. And Paul is very, very aware of the havoc that these guys can wreak within the church. And it is a major point in this epistle to Timothy to counteract the teachings of these false teachers. Timothy is literally being charged with protecting the flock from these sheep with sharp teeth, the false teachers. In 2 Peter 2, 1, Peter writes, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them. Verse 4, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. Now, you're probably somewhat familiar. You probably heard of Gnosticism. Now, Gnosticism in its full-fledged form wouldn't come about until a little bit after this letter was written, but it was still in its fledgling state, transitioning from Judaism into the Gnosticism that we know today. So as Gnosticism was taking root in the church in Ephesus, um, these people were beginning to just argue over petty things. Now, we know that Gnosticism put a heavy emphasis on knowledge, right? They said, well, you don't have the full knowledge to be saved simply in Christ. You need to listen to this special tape from my pastor. You need to do this, do this, know this. That is the heresy of Gnosticism. And what they were doing was arguing about these fake genealogies of spirits, that is what they were doing in the church. And it says that this, these things cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. Now, why would we create unnecessary disputes in the church? It's not edifying, and it serves no purpose. Yes, there are some things that are worth dying over. And we know what those things are. Those things the sound doctrine, the things that we hold dear as Christians. There are some things that are not worth fighting over, and it is important for us to know the difference. This word disputes can also be read as questions of mere speculation, simply empty questions, uh, not good for anything except making arguments. They're not practical, and they generate merely curious discussions disputes, and arguments over words. 
Paul uses in 1 Timothy 6.4. Now, he's going to revisit this idea of empty words, empty disputes, uh, (laughs) dumb questions. There are dumb questions. He's going to revisit this idea several times in these pastoral epistles. Uh, One instance is in 1 Timothy 6.4 when he says disputes and arguments over words. Uh, the next in 2 Timothy 2.14, he says, words to no profit. In 2 Timothy 2.23, he says, foolish and ignorant disputes. And in 1 Timothy 1, 6, and 7, he uses the phrase, idle talk. And these are all things that are not edifying to believers. We don't need to be arguing about things that make no difference, especially fables things that are just made up. What good does that do us um, in contending for our faith? Which cause disputes, these empty words, empty questions, rather than godly edification, which is in faith. So he says, don't take heed to fables and endless genealogies. Don't cause unnecessary questions to be asked. Don't cause disputes, but do edify, which is in faith. We should be, as believers, causing each other to be edified, building each other up instead of tearing each other down. Um, I like when something like this pops up in the scripture. It gives you something to not do, and then in place of that thing that you don't do, it gives you something to do, right? Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. It says don't do something, but then it, it gives you something to do. So it's not a rule book saying, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. But it's instructive to you. It should inform how we live. Nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. Faith is the foundation, okay? And then now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. The foundation here is faith. And love is the end of that faith. If you come to faith in Jesus Christ, eventually love is the end of that faith, and hopefully sooner rather than later. You cannot come to a genuine faith in Christ without then seeing love for your brethren. And Jesus literally said that people will know you're my disciples by the love you have one for another. They, they come together. The faith is the foundation, but then love is the end. The commandment that he talks about in verse 5 is that charge that he just gave Timothy to command the teachers to remain true to solid doctrine. That is the command. Now the purpose of this commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. Love from a pure heart from a good conscience. The reason that Timothy would want to correct these false teachers is not out of hate towards the false teachers. It's love towards his brethren who are being deceived, who are being taught false doctrines. It's out of love, love of a pure heart. We shouldn't wish evil upon these guys, but we should be motivated by love for our brothers and sisters in Christ to teach them what is true. 
Again, you don't study fake bills all day if you want to be able to catch counterfeiters. You study what is right and what is true. You study the, the real bills. And then you'll be able to spot a counterfeit a mile away. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John 13, 35. He says, from a good conscience. Now, I've heard people say that you can serve God with more authority if you have a pure conscience. Do you think that's true? I think there is some truth to it. I think that there's something to be said for someone who remains steadfast through their whole life. They don't have that moment where they think, ah, I've fallen, I've fallen away. They maintain a good conscience towards God. You grow up in the church and you never look back. I think that's a wonderful testimony. Um, I wouldn't want to, to have a sparkling, shining testimony. Oh, I used to be involved in this, this, this. And then God saved me, turned me around. That's a great testimony if you have that. But if you don't have that, you're not missing anything. You have a great testimony as well. I was saved at an early age. I went through college. I was steadfast for the Lord, and I never looked back since. That's an awesome testimony. I wouldn't look for things uh, just to, to make your testimony better. That seems silly when you say it, but... Sometimes that is a thought. But there are these characters in the Bible that you see who, who fell. David, he sinned a great sin against God. And he became a better psalmist because of it. But he was not as good of a king. Uh, we see Saul of Tarsus, who we're going to look at in more detail. He was persecuting Christians, killing them left and right. He came to Christ, and he had this crazy testimony. And that's great. And he was able to use that to further the gospel. And we'll talk about that again. But if you have that good conscience, protect that. That is wonderful. Um, stay steadfast. Paul mentions the conscience six times in these pastoral epistles. First and Second Timothy and Titus. He speaks of a good conscience, a pure conscience, a seared conscience, and a defiled conscience. He talks about all these different kinds of consciousnesses. And he is very aware of the needs of different believers. He knows that some come from a background like his, or you were once involved in something you count awful and Christ turned your life around. You have that, that conscience. You came from somewhere bad and you're no longer there. Some believers have a good conscience. They've never been anywhere bad, you know, as the world would see it. And they come to Christ and they never look back. They, he knows that some people have that kind of a conscience. And there are some that will listen to their conscience. And there's some that won't. He knows how your walk with Christ goes. The Holy Spirit is leading you saying, no, don't go that way, go this way. And he guides your conscience as you go through life and as you grow in his grace and in the knowledge of him. Now, one of the reasons that we have the scripture 
is so that we can have a pure conscience. We can go to bed tonight with the assurance that we will see Christ, that we will be with him, that we will no longer have to live in the world. Uh, We set our minds on things above, not on things on the earth. So we can go to bed tonight with a pure conscience that we have been redeemed. I lay down in bed some nights and I think, man, I did pretty good. We did pretty good, didn't we, God? He goes, I did pretty good. I don't know about you. I'm like, okay, okay. But, but we do make a good team, you know. You're a good shepherd, I'm a good sheep, and it all works. But yeah, um, I didn't do this, I didn't do that. But yeah, because I, I kept you from doing those things. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> um, I'm nothing without him. But it is, it is a good conscience. And from sincere faith. What is this sincere faith? It's just a faith without hypocrisy. You walk it how you talk it. And that's what we're talking about. Verse 6, from which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. Now, I've spent five years in the world of higher education, in academia, if you want to call it that. And these two verses, 6 and 7, remind me of academia. It seems that as soon as you get a doctorate, you lose all inkling of common sense. And, you know, I mean, they're smart. And there, there are several professors that I've had that I, I do actually look up to, and they're great guys and gals. There are some that you question how they even got that piece of paper. Um, and I worked with someone who was above me in rank at this position, he was hilarious, but he would just dog on these doctors. Um, he, he had a master's degree when I was working on my master's degree, and he was just, I mean, not very nice to him. Um, these guys, they would, as soon as you get a doctorate, you lose all your common sense, and he would just go on and on. Um, and I knew who he was talking about, and I didn't disagree with him, but he could have worded it better. Um, but really these guys, these Judaizers who were morphing into this Gnosticism that we'll see a little bit later, they were so consumed with knowledge, with just superfluous information that they lacked true understanding of what they were saying. Talking about the, the ascended masters, you know, the, all these Gnostic things, the uh, spirits, how the spirits cannot be of flesh, and Jesus couldn't have come on the earth because he was spirit, and they just go on and on about all this baseless, useless information. Most of it false. And you can't build a faith on that kind of information, on the superfluous cotton candy information from which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk. Again, this emptiness, desiring to be teachers of the law. They wanted to teach these things, and they wanted to do it well. I have no no reservations that their intentions 
were probably good. They desired to be teachers of the law, but they understood neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. Kind of goes on a little rant there, doesn't he? But what he's saying is the law acts as a mirror. The law is like the mirror when you wake up in the morning. I don't know about y'all, but I don't wake up looking like this. Um, It's much more grotesque. And I go to the mirror in the morning and I look into it. Ah, what's happened? But the mirror doesn't do anything to fix what has happened. It just tells me that I'm looking pretty rough. Okay, so the law is that mirror. You look into it and you're measuring up to this law and you see very clearly that you've fallen short. You can't possibly measure up to the standard that is set in the law. So it shows you that you're lacking, but the law itself can't do anything about that. That only comes when Jesus Christ comes into the picture. He does something about that. Um, I look terrible in the morning. The mirror can't fix that. I have to grab a hairbrush. I got to brush my hair. I got to brush my teeth. I have to do these things. The hairbrush, the toothbrush is Jesus Christ. He's come along and he can actually do something about our grotesque condition. And that's what we're talking about here. The law is not for someone who already looks perfect in the mirror. If I woke up looking perfect, the mirror does me no good. But if I, look, if I wake up looking terrible, the mirror is my best friend because it shows me what I need to fix. But we know that the law is a good one if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane. The 70 mile an hour speed limit sign is not there for someone who constantly goes 60 miles an hour. It's there for me because I have to slow down. It's not there for somebody who's already under the speed limit. It has no effect on them. It's for someone who wants to go above the speed limit. And that's how all of this works. According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. Verse 12. And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Here Paul is thinking back to his Damascus Road experience. And God counted him faithful as he was on his way to persecute Jesus Christ. He says, obtained mercy, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, 
and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. He obtained mercy. That phrase can also be read as, I was made an object of mercy. There was nothing in Saul that attracted God's love, nor was there in me. He was an insolent man, but he was made the object of God's mercy. There wasn't anything he did to deserve the mercy that he was shown. Now, mercy is not getting what you deserve. We deserve death. God's mercy says, no, you don't get death. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. We deserve death. God's mercy says, no, you don't get death. His grace says, here's eternal life. That is the mercy and the grace of God. Um, And boy, do they work together. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy. I was made an object of God's mercy because I did it ignorantly and in unbelief. Now, don't look at this and think that ignorance deserves pardon. Ignorance does not in itself deserve pardon, but it is a less culpable cause of unbelief than pride and willful hardening of your heart. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The soldiers who crucified Jesus were ignorant of what they were doing. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayers to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That's Romans 10, 1 through 4. The because in this verse does not imply that ignorance was sufficient reason for mercy to be bestowed on Paul. The because shows that it was possible for God to redeem one such as Paul. A very important distinction there. The reason for the mercy being shown to him lies solely in the compassion of God, not in anything that Paul did or didn't do. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, Titus 3.5. Not by works, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Verse 14, and the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. First was the mercy. Paul didn't get what he deserved. Next, he says the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant. First comes mercy, then comes grace. With faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. Faith is the foundation, love is the end. Both are with, are in Christ Jesus. Both can be found in Christ Jesus. 
15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. This phrase, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, has four instances in these pastoral epistles. I'd encourage you to find them. And we'll be going through them, so you'll, you'll see them as we move through it. Uh, but I would encourage you this week to seek those things out. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. That means this saying should be accepted without putting any qualifiers on it. Okay, so this is truth right here. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Now, Paul says that he is the chief of sinners. Is that our mindset? Are you the chief of sinners? Because Paul thinks that he was. This is a guy that suffered greatly for the name of Christ. Um, after he, he was a believer, he went through many, 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 many trials. And he actually lists them at one point in scripture, and it's astonishing. He died a couple times. He's been shipwrecked, snake bitten, all these things, these crazy things that we have hopefully and likely not ever experienced. And he's saying, I am the worst of the worst. I am the chief of all sinners. Is that our mindset? See, it's in that position with great humility where God can really start wrenching on your heart. If you think you're all that in a bag of chips, of course he can work with you, but he's not going to go against your will to work on you. He has respect for your choices. He created you with a free will, and he respects that. If your mom asks you, hey, do you want a cookie? You say, yeah. She says, sorry, you can't have one. Did you really have a choice? If she didn't respect the choice that you made, did you ever even have a choice to begin with? So yes, God does respect your choice. If you don't want him to bring things to light in your life that need change, he's not going to do that. He's going to let you live as you're living. If you place yourself on the bottom, I am the chief of sinners. I am the worst of the worst. That is a place of humility, and that is when your heart is soft and moldable. God can get in there. He can root out the things that are not pleasing to him, and you become sanctified through that process. You become more like his son, and that should be a goal of every Christian, to become more and more like Jesus Christ. In Philippians 3.13, Paul says, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. He doesn't say whom I was chief. But he says that he presently is chief of the sinners. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible. To God, who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, he breaks into this random doxology, but I don't think it's really random. See, I've found myself doing something like this before. You start thinking where you came from, 
how you got to Christ, the things that you did to try to run away from Christ. But he kept pulling you back. He kept pushing you towards his son. And he kept that little twinge in your heart. Be sure he didn't have to. You could have run away. But in his love, in his compassion towards you, he kept you. Paul is in this place right now, thinking about all of the things that he's done. I'm sure having flashbacks of him chopping Christians' heads off. That is a very sobering place to be. And when you realize that in that place, Jesus Christ counted you worthy to die for while you were a sinner, while you were chopping Christians' heads off. Hopefully that's none of you. While you were in that place, you were counted worthy of eternal life to be brought into the sheepfold. When I think about that, I'm alone in my room thinking about where I came from and where I am now. I cannot help but glorify God. You cannot help but break into a random, and it's not random, doxology. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Verse 18, he says, This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. A very overt um, allusion to war. He is literally talking about the fight between Satan and God and this warfare that wages currently in our earth, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, for which some, having rejected concerning the faith, we have suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now, there is some speculation as to who these guys were in other scripture, and we think that they are actually mentioned, um, it's not certain. So don't build any castles on who these guys are. But we do know that they messed up. And (laughs) Paul, it says, delivered them to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. That's pretty scary. (laughs) Paul delivering you over to Satan to learn. You know, he was teaching them a lesson. So we are going to stop at the end of chapter one this morning, and we'll pick up in chapter two next week. If the Lord tarries, let's close in a word of prayer.